Hello and welcome to the Vital Health Talk. My name is Dr. Malkowski and I'm here with Dr. Mark Coulier. We are two passionate physicians that hold not one but two doctorate degrees. We're on a mission to heal the world, bringing you the latest information from the forefront of medicine and traditional healing methods. Each week, we'll bring you an enlightening topic to enrich your life and take your health and happiness to the next level. We're so happy you're joining us today. Let our journey to All right. Hi, Dr. Malkowski. How are you doing today? Good. I'm so excited about our talk. Today, we're going to be talking about our nutrition discussion, and this week, we're going to feature gluten-free, dairy-free low FODMAPs, nutrigenomics, and fasting. It's quite the topic. Let's see if we can get it all in in under an hour. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> well, let's start then. Let's just kick it off. Let's start with going gluten-free and dairy-free. Uh, I think we should start with gluten because I feel like that's at the forefront. It's been at the forefront for years and years about going gluten-free, not going gluten-free, the health implications if you take gluten out of your diet, the health implications if you keep eating gluten. So there's a lot of confusion, lots of differing research. And I think what we should do is try to just sort through it and we can give our opinions on what we think is the best uh, based on what our patients have seen and personally. So why don't you take it away, Dr. Malkowski? Sounds good. Yeah, this is a great topic. I find this so interesting because wheat has been a part of our human culture for millennia um it goes back to every single culture has wheat involved in it you know from the ancient greeks to the ancient egyptians to even judeo-christian cultures it's very ingrained in our society so now we're in a place where it's 2018 and we're seeing so many people that are having issues with eating wheat and then on the counter side of that you have people that say hey we've eaten it forever it's been part of our diet for such a long time unless you have celiac you should have no problem with it right right you hear that all the yeah time. <laughs> yeah um it's not that simple though um so the wheat that we're eating today is completely different from the wheat that was even around 40 years ago let alone the wheat that was around 100 200 you know thousand years ago it's definitely not the same thing so It's not. And that's where the argument comes in as to why we should be avoiding wheat and gluten, because essentially what's happened is the modern day wheat has been essentially stripped of its nutrients. So with the whole I mean, we will talk about the history of wheat and how this came to be. But with the whole milling process, that has totally devitalized the wheat and it's also become genetically modified. So it becomes resistance to crops and or to um, bad weather and to pests and um, like famine situations because it can last for I think thousands of years on a shelf. The shelf life is insane of modern day wheat, so it doesn't spoil. Right. Uh, but I think one of the biggest takeaways is really with any of our the food industry nowadays is the nutrients that it's lacking, that the wheat used to have 100 years ago, 200 years ago, those nutrients and the protein and the fiber is essentially stripped uh, with our modern Mm -hmm. day processing of it. Yeah, and that's interesting that you mentioned the milling process and that it can stay stable for so long because we think of wheat in a different category than we do produce, right? So you go to the store and you would get like a fresh apple or a fresh... um, fresh, you know, broccoli or whatever, but you would never go to the store and look for fresh wheat because of the milling process. It's impossible to get it like that. But the fact is that it is a crop and it's, we should be getting fresh wheat. It's very, very rare to find. I don't actually know of any place where you can get it, but actually from a nutrition standpoint, you know, it is actually in the same category as produce and fruits and vegetables, and we should get it fresh. Um, what happens in that milling process is they break apart the component parts and that's why it ends up being shelf stable. And that's why it ends up being so detrimental to your health because you're taking it so far from the actual um, and original crop, the original wheat crop. It's not what we're consuming. Exactly. That's so true. So it's kind of, it's kind of crazy to see the, I don't even want to say the evolution, I'd say the, the devolution of, uh, 
our food supply and that being wheat specifically. Uh, so what exactly is gluten? Can you uh, talk about that a little bit? Cause I think people need to know what gluten is uh, for, uh, or what it does. Yeah. So gluten is the protein part of the wheat. It's a component of the whole wheat. Um, yeah, so that is what people, when they have celiac disease, they cannot process that gluten. It destroys their intestines. Exactly. And gluten also is what makes it the, the bread nice and fluffy and light. So gluten... Uh, it's really- Latin from the word glue, actually. Ex- exactly. Yeah, like it keeps, it's a binder, it keeps things together. Um, mm-hmm. And it's higher in higher concentrations now in our bread than what it used to be. And you know, if you look at, think about all of our bread now, even if you're buying whole wheat, it still has this light airiness to it. It's not dense like it used to be. And you know, when Mm -hmm. my great, great grandparents were producing bread, it was dense and heavy and full of nutrients and uh, very nutritious. And nowadays our nice fluffy bread, that's what everyone wants because that's what, you know, the, food industry has made appealing to us for whatever reason that we want that, that nice light fluffy bread when in actuality we're being duped that there's nothing nutritive uh, about it. Yeah, that's true. So I think gluten is definitely an issue with wheat, but I, uh, I think that's just one part of it. You know, I think it does have to do with the fact that how the crop is, um, made like you talked about too in terms of the the fertilizers and the pesticides and the hybridization so Mm -hmm. um i think that's that absolutely does impact the nutritional value of it and the thing is people are sensitive to these fertilizers and pesticides and when you have a um, genetically modified crop it does change how our body reacts to it depending on what they are splicing with it so Mm-hmm. There's so many, so many things going on with wheat these days that it's no wonder people don't feel great when they eat wheat and also people feel better when they eliminate it. It's really, they're selling us a product called wheat, but really it's nothing like actually the whole actual kernel of wheat. It's not the same thing. So exactly. Uh, it's a valid point. It's kind of become this alien crop <laughs> that our bodies, I mean, if you think about it, our bodies take a lot of time to adapt to changing environments and terrains. We're not like little, you know, monocellular bacteria and fungi that can adapt very quickly to changing environments. We are, you know, trillions of cells. And so our bodies haven't been able to really change and adapt to be able to digest these unknown proteins um, the way that other things might be able to so that's that's another argument is that wheat and gluten so i should say more so wheat that the protein structures have changed from its original um source so our bodies don't quite recognize it as what it used to be because like i said it takes a while for our bodies to adapt to to changing protein structures so the fact that wheat has become so heavily hybridized and genetically modified and like you said with pesticides i mean roundup that's a heavily sprayed crop and it's crazy to me that i mean there's studies coming out now that says oh roundup has no effects on you know cancer on celiac blah 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 but Mm -hmm. the people that are putting out the studies are monsanto and you know monsanto is this huge conglomerate over um, genetically modified crops we is a big one and they use Roundup. So of course they're going to be backing these studies saying, Hey, Roundup is fine. Everyone go eat your bread. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's not going to cause any issues. Right. So, I mean, the whole discussion around gluten and wheat, I feel like it's a very touchy one because people, especially when you tell someone like, Hey, you got to go off wheat. Let's try to like, if you have this fatigue and bloating and brain fog and you're gaining weight and you just don't feel right. Like, let's try to go off of gluten and wheat people become very defensive about yeah. it um because it's also well, one of- go on i'll say it's because you know it's also addictive so yeah wheat has something in it called gluteomorphins 
And that actually, I mean, gluteo, gluten, and then morphine, think about morphine and how addictive that is. So a lot of times people will go off of gluten or wheat and they'll tend to feel worse initially instead of better. And it has to do with the gluteomorphine withdrawal that people will get because they're not getting that, that kind of high, I guess, from eating the breads and the pastas. So it's very interesting uh, how it has such an effect on us and how it is become such a topic of debate. Yeah, exactly. And I'm glad that you mentioned that because I think that's really important to know that um, most people probably don't understand that gluteomorphins from gluten and caseomorphins from casein from milk, um, they actually are similar in structure to morphine and they act on the brain in a similar way. So people do become addicted and they do have withdrawal, like you're saying from that. So it is important to mention that and also to think just how people, you know, we can give everyone advice of how to eat or, you know, show them how it acts, but it's hard if you are having this reaction, this opiate type reaction in your brain. I mean, it's hard to go off gluten and it's hard to go off dairy. And then not to mention if you have withdrawal from it too. So I think these, this is a serious topic here actually. And the other thing is they show very clearly in children, especially children with autism spectrum disorders, that their symptoms are reduced when they are no longer consuming the gluteomorphin or the caseomorphin products. So gluten-free, dairy-free. So other conditions, um, associated, you know, um, some mental imbalances, depression, um, some anxiety, alcoholism, arthritis, celiac, schizophrenia, anorexia. So yeah, I mean, this is a prevalent condition in our society, I think for sure. Oh, totally. And I think, you know, and the other thing too is what we should address is, all right, so we, it's very inflammatory, same thing, dairy can be very inflammatory, but it's also the cumulative load. I mean, think about, so, like we said, the, the, the pesticides that are sprayed on the crop. So even if you're just <laughs> getting a little bit here and a little bit there, and not to mention all the other chemicals that aren't regulated, that we're inundated with on a daily basis, that are just wreaking havoc on our immune system and making our livers not clearing stuff out efficiently just because it's trying to work so hard to get all this other stuff out that's in our beauty products and our toothpaste and whatnot so yeah. it's like, like all this little tiny fuel to the fire that our bodies haven't had to had to deal with i mean it's in the industrial revolution where right. we're getting all all these new products that are just we, we don't know the implications of them so not only do we have the environmental toxins but not also ingesting you know gluten and wheat and dairy and processed foods and you know everything else that's toxic that can be toxic to our body just like little bits throughout time, it's going to all of a sudden, because people say, well, I ate this for years. So now while, while, why do I have to all of a sudden go off of it? But it's a cumulative load. It's just little tiny bits every day. And eventually that load is going to tip to one side where it's too much on our bodies and our bodies yeah. say, all right, I'm out. We need a break, you know, and that's when the symptoms arise. Um, and that's why it's so important to get off of stuff that's causing um, yeah, excessive inflammation. Absolutely. And this always goes back to what is common isn't necessarily normal. So we're living in a culture right now where commonly everybody is dealing with some sort of health issue. And we think it's common to have headaches or common to have PMS or common to have this sort of ache or common to be fatigued or common not to sleep at night or common to have anxiety or common to have impression depression but I mean that's not normal you know like none of that is normal we we do have the ability to live half healthy happy vibrant lives so for people to say okay I've eaten this all my life but the thing is you've had you know some PMS your whole life or you've been moody sometimes your whole life or you've had you, not the best mental health your whole life or a headache you know your whole life or your stomach's hurt on and off your whole life you know a lot of things that people just deal with and we think that this is normal everyday living in naturopathic medicine we know that's not normal you know like vibrant health is normal that's normal so I think it's important to uh, touch upon that as well exactly you know that's it, it's so true it's kind of crazy what we now consider our norm so I think that's such a valid point um, yeah, and I, I don't think people understand how great they can feel 
until they get to that point. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so, I mean, I don't, I'm sure you've realized that too. It's like, you know, I, I'm, I've gone through this where I feel like, I think I feel good. And then I eliminate something or I do, I change something in my life. I'm like, holy cow. Now, now this feels good. Like I understand yeah. what it means to feel vibrant and alive. And yeah, it's, it's crazy because a lot of people that don't feel this way a lot of it stems I mean the majority of it stems from the food we put in our mouth 100% and I'm glad you talked about Monsanto because the honest truth is these large companies are there and they are processing food in such a way to produce a higher yield for them they don't care what that does to our health I mean it started back during the industrial revolution when they started milling the the grains right and then we had the green revolution in the 50s and 60s and that's when they started with the the modernization of the farming techniques and the hybridization and the fertilizers and the pesticides. And they dramatically increased their yields. But what happened to our health is significant, but the companies, they don't really care. And I think that it is a good thing to note that animals actually won't eat the, the wheat that we eat. You cannot feed it to an animal. And that is why it's been so popular of a food product because they can leave it on the shelves and the animals won't go in and get it because it's crap. <laughs> yeah. Cause you know they know I mean? it's not, it's not real food. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, they, they don't feed it to livestock. They, I mean, they can leave it out and animals won't get in it because it's not real food. I mean, it's disgusting, you know? So oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, it's sitting there oxidizing for months. If you think about it, it's actually stale and rancid. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're eating, you know, and people think that's normal. But again, it's we're addicted to it when you talk about the gluteomorphin aspect of it. And I want to I want to um, I want to make clear here that that's not every single individual. Right. And we're not saying that every single person that ha- has the conditions which we talked about, that that is the cause of their condition. Right. We're right. just saying that this is part of it. And um, it's something to be aware, aware of. Correct. Exactly. Yeah. And then it's not going to, I mean, going gluten free is not going to um, be the, I mean, for some people it is the end all be all. That is true. Yeah. Other things that you do have to address and not just right. like, you know, focusing on, on one thing. It's, it's the whole picture of, of the person. Yeah. So it's a good start. Yes, totally. Um, and so just in general practice, what I've seen patients go off gluten I've seen low back pain resolve pretty quickly I mean in in conjunction with doing supplements and other lifestyle interventions but it's a it's a piece of the whole picture and um, and headaches have uh, resolved you know migraines that's a big one brain fog I really feel like gluten what I've seen in practice and in myself when I used to eat it um, or if I slip up and have something here and there, it's like immediate brain frog and just this like fuzzy, heavy feeling. And I've had patients say the same thing. It's like, wow, when I eat gluten, I can tell now that I don't feel good with it. And usually you can't get that feeling until you eliminate it for some time and then reintroduce it and see if your symptoms come back. Right. They say one month. It takes one month to completely eliminate it. So Yeah, exactly. And- yeah, and I'm glad that you mentioned that because three places that gluten goes, it goes to the joints, the brain, and the gut. So for you, you get that brain fog. For me, I get joint pain. Oh, my goodness. And if I, um, yeah, if I eat gluten and then the next day I run or something, yeah, my joints hurt. But I, I'm pretty much gluten-free. Now I don't remember really the last time I had gluten. And my joints feel great. So, And I had a patient recently who mentioned that um, had so shoulder surgery. And after that went gluten free and the shoulder in the other, uh, the other shoulder got better. And that wasn't necessary to have the second shoulder surgery. And it was like, Oh man, if I would have gone gluten free before, who knew maybe I wouldn't have even needed the surgery. So, I mean, there, this, there is valid uh, implications to going gluten free in terms of improving your health. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And that's one thing I think we can agree on and just like let people know, hey, today, if you want to improve your health, give this a try. Go gluten free for one week. See how you Mm -hmm. feel. Well, like I said, there are people after a week, they might not feel any symptoms. Some people might. Did I say one week? 
I meant one month. Do yeah, one month. I'll say <laughs> one week isn't really enough time because the proteins are still in our body. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I agree. And it's good to mention too, because somebody might do it for like a day or two and say, hey, I don't feel better. So this is ridiculous. But no, it's not enough time. You need to give it a month. Exactly. Um, and I really think everyone should try it just for a month. And there's been arguments against the gluten-free diet. So this is goes back to our talk, you know, last week about mm-hmm. how, all right, people maybe going gluten-free, but then they're going towards, instead of eating, you know, you know, they're no longer eating wheat bread or white bread. Now they're eating gluten-free bread that is now made from cornstarch or tapioca starch and rice flours and, you know, other things that can be highly processed with no nutritive value as well. So I was reading some articles recently about the counter argument against going gluten-free and how it actually can be uh, detrimental to the health because we're no longer getting the adequate fiber out of whole wheat bread that you would be getting. So there's this argument that now going gluten-free is going to have this rise in cardiovascular disease because we're not getting adequate fiber. Well, that's a load of baloney. If you're eating a well-balanced diet, I mean, the best way to get fiber in is through fruits and vegetables and seeds, nuts. I mean, there's so many ways to get in fiber. Uh, I mean, I'm currently drinking a hemp protein shake, and in one serving, there's 10 grams of fiber right there. That's way nice. more. Hemp's than- awesome. Uh, yeah. So that's way more than two slices of whole wheat bread is going to give you. So it's funny to me to hear that counter argument because there, there is, there are those people that they want, you know, the breads and the crackers. And don't get me wrong, I buy gluten-free crackers, but you can't go from eating one or you shouldn't I I can't say you can't because you can but you shouldn't go from eating something um, that's not good for you and just balancing out with something that might be better for you but now it's just like healthier junk food (laughs) so exactly uh, and then that's what a lot of people will uh, turn to all right well I can't have cookies I'm gonna buy gluten-free cookies I can't have bread I'm gonna buy gluten-free bread and um, it's really about addressing the whole lifestyle changing up the whole diet not just substituting right. one load of garbage for another load of garbage. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. And that does go back to what we were talking about yesterday. And I mean, not yet, last episode, not yesterday, um, in terms of the going for a whole foods diet. So getting the food that was on the farm, you know, the, the fresh produce, the vegetables, the fruits, and then the meats, like emphasizing that and staying away from anything that comes in a box or a factory. So right. yes, Ex- absolutely. Yeah. So, so that's rice, our... is, rice and quinoa are good, um, good replacements for wheat. I feel like in yes. terms of grain. Yeah. Or how easy? I mean, rice is, tends to be easily digested. Uh, so does quinoa, as well. So yeah, those are my two, my big go tos, and you get that same satisfying carb load with both of them that yeah people want. So. You- you just want to be careful. The rice is not um, grown in China because of the arsenic in the soil that they're connecting to the rice there. So, correct. And go for organic because that's obviously better. Yes, exactly. So, so. that's the way to do it. Um, so, yeah. So, that's I mean, so not talking about gluten, like, and we've already mentioned caseomorphin. Uh, we yeah. also mentioned dairy. Because a lot of times people go gluten-free or just dairy-free, but there's also a gluten-free, dairy-free trend. And so, first of all, to, I guess we'll start talking about dairy. The dairy can actually cross-react with wheat. They have very similar protein structures. And so a lot of times when people actually have to avoid wheat or they're trying to avoid wheat, but they're still taking in dairy products. So what we mean by dairy is milk and cheese and ice cream um yogurt yogurt thank you uh stuff like that so people might still be ingesting dairy and they're still getting the reaction as if they're still ingesting wheat and it's like well wait Mm -hmm. a second why is this happening but the issue is that pro uh, that dairy and wheat have very similar protein structures and that's what our body i mean when, when you eat food it gets broken down into little proteins and into the DNA. And that's what our body recognizes. So actually dairy and gluten have very similar protein structures. 
um, as well as corn, millet, oats, even rice can actually um, cross-react with gluten and yeast. So those are all things to be aware of. But dairy is another big player when, when you hear about people saying, oh, I'm, I'm dairy-free. And um, I'll have you, Dr. Malkowski, I don't just kind of elaborate on dairy a little bit more. Sure. Yeah, this is awesome. I love talking about this. Uh, Gluten-free, dairy-free is my jam. I think it's a really, really healthy way to go. Um, Dairy is very inflammatory. It is not fit for human consumption. I'm just going to lay it all out there. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So what happens is we produce the enzyme, lactase enzyme, to digest lactose, which is um, the from milk. It's um, the sugar lactase, it's sugar in the, the dairy uh, bound together is called lactose that's in milk. And we produce the lactase enzyme to digest that, to break that uh, beta bond apart um, and use that. So we produce that as human beings up until age two. It's actually mm-hmm. made for us to digest our mother's milk. Beyond that, though, after the age of two, we no longer produce the lactase enzyme. It is not part of our DNA to secrete that. It's really just there to get us to consume the milk from our mom and then move on with our lives and go on to eating um, fruits, vegetables, and meat like other mammals. Um, But what happens is if you actually continue to drink dairy your body will produce that lactase enzyme. Uh, This is absolutely a um, genetic mutation because you're actually, you're technically uh, tricking your DNA into doing something it's not supposed to do. So technically it's a genetic mutation to continue to secrete that lactase enzyme. So right there, I mean, I think that says to me, probably not the best idea. Um, And the thing is, what happens is when people go off dairy and then they go back on it, they kind of a lot of times will have some sort of GI disturbance because you literally can't digest it. You're not secreting that the lactase enzyme. So the issue with dairy is it's very inflammatory. I mean, you know, the whole thing is we can't digest it. It's very inflammatory. It's very acidic. It's not a good source of calcium. Like we've been told that is a complete lie. Um, So yeah, it's, it's not fit for human consumption. It does not contribute to vibrant natural health. So yeah, exactly. And it's, I mean, milk is essentially mucus coming from the cow. And if you're ingesting mucus, you're going to produce mucus. (laughs) Like, especially for the enzymes are not no longer working. Mm -hmm. Um, When we were um, little kids, then you know, the, the more milk you consume, chances are the more mucusy you're going to become or you're going to get. So yeah, it really is just, you know, pus, you're drinking pus. <laughs> and it's so, um, it's so acidic that it actually pulls the calcium and magnesium and potassium from the bones. So actually, the countries which have the highest rates of dairy consumption also have the highest rates of osteoporosis. So that's very proven in research. Um, in Asian countries where they are not consuming milk, they have much lower rates of osteoporosis than here in America. So unfortunately, Amer- American dairy is a huge part of our culture, but it's not beneficial to our health. And now we're in a place where they're genetically engineering the milk with the recumbent bovine growth hormone to increase the milk production. And what happens is kids are eating the dairy now and they're getting all these hormones and children are getting their periods in um, third grade now. Wow. Yeah. Second and third grade. Seriously, kids are, you know, all these hormones are so bad for us and we're just consuming them every day, all day long. Um, And then the other thing is too, with ear infections for children. So, so many times uh, this goes back to being common and not normal. People think it's common for kids to have ear infections. I mean, no, my daughter had one ear infection her whole life after consuming uh, dairy that weekend. And my son's had no ear infections his whole life. It's not normal for kids to have ear infections. They shouldn't have ear infections. And dairy, I feel like, is the number one contributor to this um, in terms of, like you said, that mucus production there. So it really produces that mucus in the sinuses, that postnasal drip mucus. 
And then what happens is that goes into the ears and you get those ear infections. So dairy is definitely related to that for sure. Well, I think there's two things that we should elaborate on a little bit more that you address. The first one um, is about, so girls getting their periods at a younger age. So let's just (laughs) think about the implications of this because there have been many studies showing the longer that you have your menstrual cycle, the chances are, uh, or the, the likelihood of developing an estrogen dependent cancer go up because your body is being exposed to estrogen at a longer time. So actually women who don't have any children um, or who started their menstrual cycle at younger ages are at an increased risk of developing certain cancers. Um, And so now that we have young girls getting their periods at nine, 10, 11 years old, you know, just think about that. They're, they're now they're exposed to higher amounts of estrogens for at least 30 something years of their life. So I think that has huge implications that probably haven't really been touched upon or researched much about, or if it has, I don't, I don't, I'm not familiar with the research. No, I don't, I don't know either. Yeah. That'd be great um, to look into though. Yeah. So I think that's something that we really uh, need to address. And then the second thing is talking about osteoporosis and really it's a lie. I feel like we've been fed another lie about, you know, you Mm -hmm. need to consume your dairy and your cheese and your yogurt to get your calcium because uh, just like you mentioned, and you know, they're saying that Mm -hmm. calcium is going to keep our bones strong. Not necessarily. Uh, Calcium is, I mean, there's all these different factors that go into bone health that get negated. Like magnesium and vitamin D and vitamin K, uh, potassium, all of these things are so essential for bone health. And all we hear is calcium, calcium, calcium. And so the uh, calcium is a totally essential nutrient. We need it for conduction in our heart, for enzymatic processes that go on in our body. However, we are a very calcium dominant society. And think about when you have too much calcium. What do you mean? Well, wait, what do you mean calcium dominant? Not calcium, like we intake too much calcium. Yeah, we emphasize it way too much. Well, we emphasize it, but we take it in way too much. Okay. Okay. Yeah, no, we ingest it. And calcium is kept in a delicate balance with magnesium. And we're very Mm -hmm. magnesium deficient. Yeah. So um, people, especially we don't have magnesium in our soil. And uh, so calcium is not being balanced well enough. And so when calcium runs rampant in our body, I mean, that causes, think about calcified arteries. You know, calcium is in that word, calcified. You know, so excess calcium can um, wreak havoc and it actually creates a more acidic environment. It actually can increase our sympathetic nervous system to make us, because it increases excitability of our cells. So it can make us more anxious and more like, um, like more sympathetic dominant. That's a great point. The fact that we are, and now you see this rise in anxiety, especially yes, in young sure. kids. It's like, why, yeah. why are so much the anxiousness going on? So, you know, taking in dairy and saying, you, you need your calcium, you need your calcium. Yes, we do need calcium, but it's also hasn't been, it's not well balanced if you're not eating a, a balanced diet. So, you know, addressing that, you know, we need calcium for bone health and for all this other stuff. It's only part it's like 10% true there's a whole nother 90% well you can't even absorb the calcium from the milk because it's too acidic right you need an alkaline environment to absorb calcium so milk is not it's flat out not a good source of calcium that's just not even biochemically possible it's false so the good sources of calcium are kale broccoli your like the like you're talking about the mineral balance because they have all these other minerals in them magnesium potassium calcium um but you know like vitamin k all that stuff is in there so that's what your body needs your body needs it in that form and alkaline variety to absorb it so yeah for sure exactly um and actually vitamin k takes calcium from the blood vessels and helps put it into the bone so if you're not getting k and all these green leafy vegetables it's not Chances are your calcium is not going to your bones. It's going to your arteries. Well, yeah. And they found out too, that people that are just supplementing with vitamin D without vitamin K, it does pull it from the, from the bones. So calcium the bones. Yes. Okay. 
yeah yeah um oh go on oh no that's it that's just my little side rant about calcium yeah. <laughs> uh yeah that's important and also kidney stones are definitely I... related to this so absolutely um I do want to mention real quick butter because we talked about butter last week and we could just glorify and glamorize that and now we're talking about dairy so butter is a dairy product but um, the way that it's processed, there's no protein in it anymore, um, and it doesn't have lac- um, lactose in it. It's just fat. So, right. um, so you can digest it. People who uh, follow a lactose-free diet and avoid dairy can generally um, consume butter. And this isn't unless you have a milk allergy, like an um, IgE type anaphylactic allergy don't eat butter at all but if you're just you know going along what we're talking about then you you're safe with butter exactly and um grass-fed butter it has higher amounts of butyrate in it and butyrate is so beneficial for our colon to have a happy colon our colon take it up and use it as energy and butyrate is also very important for um our defense uh, so our defense, our immune system, because our immune system is our gut. And without proper amounts of butyrate, we're not keeping our immune system happy. We're decreasing the amount of secretory IgA that's needed uh, to keep bacteria out. So butyrate is very, very beneficial to our uh, gastrointestinal system being happy and healthy. Absolutely. So, so eat yeah, some grass-fed so butter. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's so good for you. And that's a good source of omega-3s. And then it's also a good source of CLA, conjugated linoleic acid. And that's a healthy fat. And it's been um, associated with preventing the buildup of plaque in arteries. And it's good for your bones. Um, it's also been associated with decreasing the risk of cancer and regulating immune function and inflammation. So, yeah, like it goes back to what we said before, butter is actually a health food. And I love there's this meme where it's like a tiny thin slice of bread and then twice as much like a huge thing of butter on it and it's like that's how we do it you know that's how we eat our bread and butter it's like a little bit of bread and a ton of butter which is so reversed to what we um have been taught and brought up with but I know anytime we have butter I just let my kids go at it they can have as much butter as they want we have that (laughs) grass-fed butter (laughs) yes love it yeah so good okay good Anything well, else like you could... want to add about that? <laughs> no, I was going to say, I feel like we could keep talking and talking about gluten and dairy. <laughs> I know um, we could. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, uh, yeah, that sums up for me. So personally, I am in dairy-free, I would say 90% of the time. I don't have any allergies, but I will consume kefir. And I do know that I feel good when I have when I add kefir to my smoothies. Oh, but, you should explain um, what that is, though. Okay, so kefir is really um, fermented milk, yeah. so a uh, product, and I, I like it because it has the natural probiotics in it to help digest food. Yeah, and so, since it's fermented, yeah, it has yeah. very little lactose, like, so that's why it's easy to digest. Exactly, and I actually notice a difference in my digestion when I do add it um, to my smoothies. So that's about the only dairy that I'll consume, uh, just because I know I feel better skin looks clearer and uh yeah I just don't feel as sluggish when I when I um don't have dairy yeah and so same here I agree with that I think you know eating dairy free is the way to be I personally got into naturopathic medicine um 11 years ago um and it was a dairy allergy that that brought me into this field and I'd been diagnosed two other times prior as a child but um, kind of didn't pay any attention to it. And it's not a severe allergy. It's dairy sensitivity. So like when I get stressed, I cannot, when I, when I'm stressed and I eat dairy and I'm, my body's just run down, I definitely break out in a rash. Um, yeah, so I don't eat dairy. Um, but I do sometimes have a goat or sheep because the enzyme is different. It's easier for us to break down. So like, you know, cheese and wine, come on, every once in a while. So. <laughs> but you know, you have so, to live a little. Yeah, go for the goat and go for the um, 
the sheep for sure. And I'm sure there's, I mean, many other animals that you could do, like camel or bison or something like that. Who knows? I mean, it's 2018. This is like a, a global type <laughs> of um, plate here, you know? So let's, you know, experiment besides oh, yeah. the cow. But um, I do want to mention too, because sometimes people are like, oh my gosh, what will I have for breakfast if I don't have milk and cereal? Well, this goes back to the whole milk is in a, uh, cereals in a box. You should eat the box, actually, the physical box, the cardboard, because that's just the same as eating the cereal, right? So scratch Sometimes it's healthier. Yeah, right? It's healthier. It's not genetically modified, right? Um, But yeah, scratch that whole milk and cereal concept and make some eggs. Eggs are great for breakfast. Eggs, and you can do some Ezekiel bread, because that is, you know, um, digestible with some butter on there and some fresh fruit. There you go. Like that's a really healthy breakfast. So, and it's so easy and fast, you know, and protein. You oh know? yeah. Yeah. There's no protein Pro- in milk. And, um, I mean, there's supposedly eight grams of protein in a glass of milk, but realistically how much of that is your body absorbing and utilizing? That's a whole nother thing. But anyways, I'm just saying it's very easy to eat, um, not milk and cereal and have a healthy breakfast and get out the door. You know, it's really easy to do. Yeah. Eggs. I love smoothies. You can add protein shakes to the smoothies. Yes. Um, consisting of, yeah, berries and greens and adding hemp seeds, flax seeds, chia seeds. Oh, get no. all your omegas, get some extra protein in. So, yeah, there's different ways. You kind of just have to play around with it. Yeah. Um, just to see what works works for you yeah so you can do oatmeal and then also quinoa quinoa is awesome as like a breakfast cereal you can eat it just like you would oatmeal oh yeah or even doing chia seed pudding so, so good yeah oh yeah when you take chia seeds and you can mix it with almond milk coconut milk choose your favorite type of nut milk um and you leave it overnight and what actually happens is the chia seeds gelatinize and make it into like this thick pudding type of substance that's actually really good i love to add a little bit of um, vanilla and some maple syrup and sea salt and it's delicious yum yeah Yeah. and i'm glad you mentioned maple syrup because that's a really good sweetener good source of b vitamins so and vanilla is good yeah yeah (laughs) long story short there's options yes so um the next thing we said we were going to talk about is the low fodmap diet so are you familiar with that I am, um, to an extent, it's definitely something that the research has, you know, it, that I, I've read and I've actually tried it myself. Oh geez. A few years ago, because I was having some, um, GI symptoms that just were not going away and it definitely did help, but I think mm-hmm. we need to define what FODMAPs. Mean. Yeah. So do you want to define? Yeah, sure. So FODMAPs are a group of small chain carbohydrates, so very small chains like sugars and fibers um, that are absorbed in the small intestine. So the FODMAP foods are the ones that um, they are saying have a hard time being absorbed in the small intestines. So um, they're fermentable oligosaccharides, which are fructans and galacto-oligosaccharides disaccharides, lactose, that's milk sugar, that's what we were just talking about, monosaccharides, which is fructose, that's fruit sugar, and polyols, which are sugar alcohols like mannitol and sorbitol. So examples of food that that would be, it's um, wheat, barley, rye, apples, pears, mango, onion, garlic, honey, kidney beans, cashew nuts, agave syrup, um, sugar-free gum because the sorbitol and then like mints mm-hmm. too as well. So um, I think this is a good idea, but if you, if you look at this, it's two of the things we already talked about, right? So wheat and dairy. So, yes, you know, that's a huge, huge thing there. And the other thing is too, agave syrup is definitely not healthy. It's very similar to high fructose corn syrup and how the liver processes it. So we shouldn't be consuming that anyways. And then sugar-free gum, we shouldn't be consuming anyways either because of um, the aspartame is absolutely horrific for our um, our brain health. So, yeah. Um, exactly. It's, it's kind of becoming a trendy diet. I think we'll see it more because you mentioned the gastrointestinal, like the GI symptoms, gas, bloating, pain um, that are very um, common in our society. 
So I think for people who want to give it a try, I don't think it's harmful, right? It's definitely not. It's a very restrictive diet. It's mm-hmm. very restrictive. So uh, a lot of the research says it's not a sustainable diet. It's one that you do for six weeks to two months to kind of help decrease the symptoms of IBS, IBD, celiacs, Crohn's, ulcerative colitis, which I guess are under the IBD umbrella. Mm-hmm. But um, IBD meaning irritable um, or inflammatory bowel disease. Yep. Um so a lot of stuff saying it's a good six weeks to two months to kind of calm things down as you work on repairing and healing the gut. Right. But doing this type of diet is, uh, it's like I said, it's pretty restrictive. And even a lot of touted health foods are on the list. Right. Uh, that, uh, so like garlic is on it and leeks, onions, uh, asparagus, artichokes, pears, you know, stuff like that. So it's like I said, it's very restrictive, but people that go on it do see a great reduction in their symptoms but it comes down to, all right, that's, that's taking away all these these foods that might be reacting, but we, we ultimately need to focus on is healing the person mm-hmm. so that they might not react as much to these foods so they can slowly start reincorporating it. Yeah, that sounds great. And that's where the naturopathic medicine shines because a lot of these diets are kind of just treating symptoms. And in naturopathic medicine, we get to the root cause and we treat the individual, uh, not the symptoms and not even... Um, the disease sometimes we really treat the individual so I think that's important for sure exactly so So. yeah so speaking of IB is there anything else you want to add about this though no it's pretty it's pretty straightforward Um, so I think that that's a quick little rundown of it I mean maybe maybe in a later time we can go into it a little bit more but Mm -hmm. um, I think that was just a good quick little down and dirty of it Yeah. Um, The thing, too, I do think that plays a role into this is the, um, like you said, the sympathetic and the parasympathetic. So the sympathetic is that fight or flight response and the parasympathetic is that rest and digest. And in our culture right now, everybody is in this fight or flight response. We're like, go, 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 go. So that does impair the way that our intestines move. And that could be part of the reason that these... um, small uh, sugar foods are having a hard time. These small chain carbohydrates are having a hard time being digested in into the small intestine, you know, like that's could be a contributing factor too. So. Right. Cause we're not sitting and having meals. We're eating on the run all the time. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Just, yeah. Just wanted to mention that. Um, but interesting, we, you talked about IBD and IBD is one of the, areas where nutrigenomics is investigating. So do we want to jump into nutrigenomics? Sure. Yeah, I'll let you take that one away. Okay, great. So nutrigenomics is actually the study of how our genes um, are affected by the food we eat. So the nutrition actually changes the expression of our genes. So um, right now they are studying uh, 38 different genes that I'm aware of at this time and seeing how different foods interact with this. And um, some cases they are relating this to specific diseases. So a major focus of nutrigenomics is actually prevention of disease, which is naturopathic for sure all the way. I mean, we're all about preventing disease. That's 100% you know, a goal. We want everyone to be healthy. So I, Mm -hmm. so I think it does apply to naturopathic medicine for sure. Oh, definitely. I mean, essentially what nutrigenomics is finding is that our nutrition, our health, what we put in our mouth affects not only the expression of genes, but their physical integrity and the stability of them. So it's definitely um, some interesting research that's happening here and, you know, what exactly what foods we put in our mouth and uh, just kind of how it affects our overall genome. Right. Um, And so just to give some examples, we mentioned IBD, which um, ulcerative colitis and Crohn's, and these are growing conditions in our culture. It's very common for people to have gastrointestinal dysfunction and then to get a diagnosis of ulcerative colitis and Crohn's, these rates are increasing. Um, So for these conditions, they actually are investigating 160 nucleotide polymorphisms. So that's just 
polymorphism means a different structure or different expression of that gene, that protein. So um, they're looking at 160 different ones that could be implicated in developing IBD, uh, ulcerative colitis, or Crohn's. So just as another example, in Crohn's, we're relating Crohn's to a decrease in selenium. And then what happened is they studied 13 of the 24 single nucleotide polymorphisms. So SNP, SNP is what that's called. And that means that the gene is expressed in a different way. Um, and they're saying that 13 of them, they noted that they were expressed differently. And as they were expressed differently, they uh, reacted with selenium differently. So they're saying, hey, maybe that's why people develop Crohn's if they have their genes are expressed in this different way. If they have the SNP, they aren't reacting with selenium as most other people, therefore leading to Crohn's. So it's pretty wow. Yes. And so they did the same thing with IBD because IBD um, is related to decreased zinc. And so they're mm-hmm. saying possibly people aren't absorbing zinc properly. So um, they investigated that. And yeah, the other thing too, they're saying is vitamin D. So decreased vitamin D is related to developing Crohn's. And then they're saying that um, this has to do with polymorphisms and the vitamin D receptor. And that leads to the development of Crohn's. So it's interesting. So if you're consuming different foods that have these, um, these nutrition in them, each person might be absorbing them differently and could possibly be leading to the development of these diseases. So everyone has their Achilles heel and that's what we look at mm-hmm. in naturopathic medicine is the, we look, take everything into account and try to address it, you know, and if that's your Achilles heel, we try to fix it and come at it. Exactly. Yep. That's so true. Um, and I want to, and I feel like one of the big um focuses also has been on folate and folic acid and how that has uh, an effect especially on the developing uh, fetus yeah but I just want to mention uh, there are two different studies conducted and one was published in July 1998 issue of carcinogenesis and another one in April 2001 in the journal of mutation research and they found that we need at least 200 micrograms of folate per day to keep our chromosomes nice and happy and stable. What they found is that as folate concentrations decrease uh, from anywhere from 120 to 12 uh, micrograms per day is or can cause the same amount of genomic damage that would be induced by an acute exposure of ionizing radiation. Wow. So, yeah. So that essentially there's... Isn't that that folate yeah. having just this tiny amount reduced? I mean, but that's also why now, all right, let's go back to our whole, here we come full circle back to the, the wheat conversation. Yeah. So folate acid used to be uh, in wheat naturally, but part of the milling process is that they strip all those nutrients from the wheat and then they put it back in um, with enriching it. So, you know, the folic acid deficiency isn't as much of an issue as it used to be because they're enriching all of our grains with it now. But, you well, know, folic full, should still be something you get not from grains. Well, folic acid is not the best form of that B vitamin. It should be in the form of folate. So the whole... Folate. Yeah. So the whole supplementing grains with folic acid is actually it's a whole nother talk, but that's, it's, it's problematic for sure. Right. Um, but it's just so, it's just interesting that they showed how even one little micronutrient like folic acid, uh, can have, or folate can have such a, um, detrimental effect on our whole, uh, genome and chromosome stability. Yeah, it is interesting for sure. I think it's, yeah, it just shows how, these little things like what we eat every single day, really, I mean, you can really see how it does impact our health on a, mm. a global scale. Like it has a huge impact, you know? Oh yeah, exactly. So, but I think there's going to be so much more and it still continues to have the research coming out on nutrigenomics. And we definitely, 
uh, yeah, there's there's so much to it that I feel like once again we could do a whole other session on nutrigenomics. But essentially, it is you know you you are what you eat, <laughs> or you you your genes are expressed by what you eat. So that's what I love this saying, and I think I've already said this in another podcast that um, your genes load the gun, but your environment pulls the trigger. So yeah, and, and that's kind of how nutrigenomics um, talks about essentially. Yeah, it's 90% um, environment and 10% genetics. So yeah, that's awesome. So you really can have any sort of genetic predisposition. But I mean, 90% of it is is up to you. Like you have the power, you know, Mm -hmm. you can do this. Yeah, right. Exactly. And Uh, that's cool. Because yeah, that is cool. Because in nutrigenomics, it's like, okay, if you do have one of these um, genes where like we were speaking about earlier about IBD and Crohn's, if you do have one of the genes where you can't really um, take in selenium, vitamin D or zinc, then you know to supplement with that or, you know, have more in your diet. So you counteract that. Exactly. So, yep. Yeah. It's, it's very interesting. So here we go. Science. <laughs> Yeah. And I think it goes back to the whole food is medicine thing, because honestly, food is medicine. Like, let's never forget that. Let's never negate that. I mean, food is 100% medicine. When you look at the power of the food, I mean, just what we talked about today is like, not even the tip of the iceberg. It's like, nothing compared to all the research that's out there. Right, exactly. It's, It's so true. So to be continued and to see what happens as um, the research unfolds. But also the research makes it more confusing too. Cause it's almost like the more research comes out, the more it's like, wait a second, what should I be eating? What shouldn't I be eating? <laughs> so it can get overwhelming. And I'm hoping that's part of our job here on the podcast is kind of sort through the confusion mm-hmm. and uh, give you like the, the nitty gritty. Right. In a coherent way. So you, you're not as confused about yeah. health in general. <laughs> For sure. And we want it to be um, accessible to everybody. You know, I mean, I know I've had patients that come in and they do genetic testing because that's kind of popular right now. And all of this information comes back and it really doesn't change what we're going to do. We're still going to go gluten free. We're still going to go dairy free and we're going to emphasize fruits and vegetables. And I mean, the genetic profile supports that, but I mean, we would have done that anyways. So exactly. Yeah, we really want everyone to have access to good information and be able to take control of their health. Because again, it's 90% environment, meaning like what you do, what you eat, when you sleep, you know, what you drink, your mental state, your exercise, you know, things like that. And there's so much you can do to improve your health. Exactly. And um, I'll just touch on this a little bit more. But that's also like doing the genetic testing is wonderful and great but also there's a downside to it where people become so focused on it like all right i have this snip i have the mthrfr snip and that's like what totally you know they become fixated on and it's like all right i understand you have this and maybe the mthfr isn't a good one to use but um, different poly- <laughs> because that one is so you they, someone comes in and they ha- say i have this genetic polymorphism and mm-hmm. this is why I can't do X, Y, or Z. But what we need to do as practitioners is say, all right, but we're treating you as the whole person. And, um, you know, once again, what you put in your mouth affects that gene. So let's not become fixated and anxious over this, this one gene. Let's, let's treat you as a whole and just see what happens. So absolutely. Can- yeah. Go on. But it, it can pose um, obstacles to cure, but not all the time. So it's a, definitely a case-by-case basis. Mm-hmm. For sure. Uh, Take it case-by-case. I agree. Right. Exactly. So, well, do you have anything else to uh, elaborate on about nutrigenomics or anything we've talked about? Um, you know, I know. I think we should do a um, podcast, though, on MTHFR because that's really becoming mainstream now and we do have a lot of information about that and even if somebody does test positive for that there's a lot of things that can be done so yes, i think we can talk exactly. about that all right that'll be a good future one and um and i also think that we said we we're going to talk about fasting today but we've 
spent a lot of time talking on these other few subjects. So I think we should hold off on fasting and talk about that and a whole, it can have its own episode because it's so fascinating and wonderful. <laughs> yes. Fascinating fasting. Yes. That. Fascinating That's fasting. Fine. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. Well, thanks for listening. So please pass on this information to those who you think would benefit. We'd really appreciate a like or a share or a subscribe and even a review if you feel uh, inspired to review. That'd be awesome. But we really appreciate you listening to this content. And remember, have a happy, healthy day.